0: Hey friends, open up your Bible to Mark chapter 14. Today we're going to be covering verses 32 to 42, and this is our, let's see, this is our fourth week in the book of Mark chapter 14, and we're going to have one, at least one more week after this. We've already talked about how Judas handled the hard sayings of Jesus, and he didn't handle them very well, by the way. We did that a few weeks ago. Then we talked about how do you know if you're a Judas or a Peter? That was the one where during the Last Supper, Jesus said to his disciples that one of them would betray him, and they all asked the same question. I don't know if you ever noticed that before, but they asked the question, am I the one? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, we talked about how Jesus kept Peter on mission, because Jesus warned Peter that he would actually deny Jesus three times and Peter kept saying no it would never happen i would never do something like that well jesus didn't panic when his disciples faith faltered jesus stayed on mission and and we saw last week that he knew that his disciples would eventually stay on mission as well so that's what we covered last week. So this whole time in Mark chapter 14, we've been sort of marching toward the cross. Jesus is just moments away from being arrested. In fact, that's what we're going to see in today's lesson. And so today we're going to look at this story where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's moments away from his betrayal. We'll talk about that betrayal next week. He's moments away from his crucifixion, and he knows it. And we're going to see today how Jesus' actions, and by contrast, his disciples' actions, how all of this gives us some insight into our question for the day. And here's the question. Before we get to the text, I always like to start with a question. Here's a question I want you to think about even as we read the story of Jesus in this Garden of Gethsemane. The question is, how should you pray in your hour of need? Now, maybe this is exactly why you're listening to this episode. Maybe you saw the title and you thought, I want to know the answer to this. And we're going to give you the answer through the eyes of Jesus, because Jesus is in the garden praying in exactly his hour of need. We're going to see surprisingly that Jesus is in utter anguish, utter torment of soul. And maybe that's just where you are right now. Maybe with your emotions, maybe you're fighting anxiety or you're fighting depression, or maybe you've been fighting those things for a long, long time. Or maybe today you're listening to this because you're fighting for your marriage. You know, your, your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe you've been married a long time, but you're in a low point in your marriage and you're not sure. You're not sure if you guys are going to make it, or maybe you are on the other end of that. And you're single you're looking for a spouse. You've been looking for a spouse for a long time. It's like, you know, you're praying about it to God. You're you're calling out in desperation to God. You're a good person. You love Jesus. But you're wondering when when it's your turn. You're wondering when you get to meet that person that you can spend the rest of your life with. So maybe that's why you're praying in your hour of need. Or maybe you just lost your job or you're struggling financially like so many people are these days. So wherever you are, Right now in your hour of need, you've probably spent a lot of time in prayer and maybe you're wondering if you're doing it right. <laughs> maybe you're wondering if well maybe I'm not praying the right way because I don't I don't think God's answering the prayer the way I've been hoping for. Well, we're going to answer that question today as we get to the text. So let's go there now. Mark 14 starting in verse 32. It says that Jesus and his disciples went to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. All right, let's pause here on verse 34. Let's talk through these three verses real quick. It's interesting, when Jesus said, stay here and keep watch with me, he didn't want his disciples to go with him to pray. He's gonna go on a little bit further and pray by himself. He wanted them to pray for him. That's what he meant when he said, keep watch with me. He wanted them to pray for him. I mean, have you ever said that to someone before? Hey, pray for me. Would you pray for me? I hope you have people in your life. I hope you have godly people in your life who will do just that for you. I hope you have someone to turn to so that you don't feel alone in your hour of need. Jesus had those people. He had his he had his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and they then he had the other disciples as well. All of them were with him here except for Judas, and he needed them. I mean, he he was he as it says here, he was crushed and he needed a wingman. And I hope you have that in your life. I hope you have some confidants. I hope you have a small group. You know, in my life, I've got some godly men. I'm so grateful for the godly men in my life. A lot of these guys are are pastors on staff with me. Some of them are just longtime friends that I can count on when I'm in a desperate place. I remember years ago, I was in a desperate place physically. The doctors said I might possibly have cancer. It was a scary time for a few weeks. And I remember the kids were little, and I so depended on those close inner circle friends, the Peter, James and Johns in my life to say, would you please pray for me? I'm desperate here. And it was such an encouragement to know that I had people like that. You know, my daughter's now in her early twenties and I'm so grateful she's down, you know, away from home. She's, she's living her life. She's in her career. She's doing great. I'm so grateful that she has a group of young women who love Jesus and who love her and who can be that you know, that prayer support for her. We all need people to stay here and keep watch with me. That's what Jesus needed at this point. Now we'll look at how good of a job they did in just a little bit. Before we do that, the most interesting part of this whole passage to me is the part where it says that he became deeply troubled and distressed. The part where it says that he said, my soul is crushed to the point of death. The Expositors Bible Commentary says that the two verbs translated deeply distressed and troubled together describe an extremely acute emotion, a compound of bewilderment, fear, uncertainty, and anxiety nowhere else portrayed in such vivid terms as here. And so the question that I have is, why did Jesus have so much angst? This doesn't sound like Jesus to me to say my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. It actually sounds kind of dramatic to me. It sounds more like Peter. Doesn't this sound like a Peter comment? Someone who's, you know, experiencing the the highest highs and the lowest lows, and he's not afraid to say it. But this goes against what we've come to expect from Jesus. Jesus was always measured. Jesus was always confident. Jesus took everything in stride, right? Jesus was always at peace. And here he is in the garden of Gethsemane and he he's like crushed he's distressed he's troubled you know it reminds me of my my own story just a few years ago I just out of nowhere I started having panic attacks I felt so weak I felt I felt so faithless to experience something you know typically I'm pretty steady uh, in fact, my daughter even said it was strange to see me in that place because I was kind of the rock for her. I just had never really reacted like that. So she, well, on the one hand, she was appreciative that I was human. But on the other hand, it was surprising to her to see to see me being so crushed, so distressed. And that's how I think when I see this with Jesus, that, that his soul is crushed to the point of death, that... He's in this place that maybe you can relate to and I hope you're encouraged by this by the way because I think what this shows us is the human side of Christ. That's what Gethsemane reveals. It reveals to us it reminds us that Jesus wasn't fully God only. He was also fully man. That that's we talked about this some time back in this Mark series. That's called the hypostatic union this this uh, this belief, this distinctly Christian belief, it goes all the way back to the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD, where we have come to articulate this, who Jesus is. Jesus is fully God. He's 100% God. It's not like he's a JV God or sometimes he sometimes is God and sometimes wasn't God. No, he's always God. He's fully God but he's also fully man. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the fully human side of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but for me, that's super helpful. That's super encouraging to know that Jesus can relate to what you're going through right now. At your low point, Jesus can relate to it. The author of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews 4, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So the fact that Jesus became deeply troubled and distressed, the fact that he said his soul was crushed with grief, should be an encouragement, it should be a reminder to us that when we're experiencing grief, when we're experiencing a struggle like this, That Jesus experienced the same kind of struggle, and that he wants us to come to God in the midst of that. I hope you're encouraged to know that God wants to hear you crying out to him. In fact, Jesus, God the Son, cried out to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you should do the same thing. But one more thing about this passage before we move on, because here's the reason that it was so crushing for Jesus. It's not because Jesus was afraid to die, because he certainly wasn't afraid to die. The reason that this was so crushing as he was sort of staring down the cross is because he knew that he would have to absorb the wrath of God for our sake. You know that that God wouldn't cancel his wrath against humanity, but instead he would spend it on his son, Jesus. God the Father would spend his wrath on his son at the cross, and Jesus knew that, and that's why the the Garden of Gethsemane was so crushing for him is because he knew what was coming. The Pillar New Testament commentary says, not his own mortality, but the specter of identifying with sinners so fully as to become the object of God's wrath against sin. It is this that overwhelms Jesus' soul to the point of death. God didn't say, oh, your sin is no big deal. It's no big deal that that you wanna be in charge. It, it's no big deal that you wanna elevate your your opinions and your thoughts above my truth. God God can't say it's no big deal. It is a big deal. Somebody had to pay for our sins. Somebody had to pay for my rebellion and your rebellion. And the one who would pay was Jesus. And that's why he was so crushed while he was praying to the Father at the Garden of Gethsemane. Now let's read on to hear his actual prayer. Mark 14 Now we're at verse 35 and 36. It says that he went on a little farther and fell to the ground. And here's what he prayed. He prayed that if possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. Quote, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. If it were possible, that's what it says there if it were possible he was wondering if maybe there was a way out he was mu- he was wondering if maybe there was a pathway that could avoid suffering now he still wanted to absorb the wrath of god he still wanted to accomplish everything that he was on earth to accomplish but what he's praying in the garden of gethsemane is is there another way is there an easier way is there is there a way where i don't have to suffer so much and maybe some of you can relate to this very kind of prayer. You know, maybe you're praying, God, is there some way that you could just take away this anxiety? Is there some way you could take away this depression? I need a shortcut. I need I need your help. I need you to bring me through this. I remember pr- praying that a few years ago during my panic attacks, it was anxiety, it was panic anxiety that I'd never experienced before. I mean, nothing close to that. And I th- those were my prayers. I'm like, God, please take this away. I can't handle this. Please take this cup, cup of suffering away from me. Maybe that's what you're praying right now as well. Or maybe in your marriage, maybe you're saying, God, is there some way that you can somehow get us out of this? I don't know how to resolve this. In fact, maybe some of you are wondering if if divorce is, is just the thing. Maybe some of you, that's kind of what you're praying for. You're like, just give me an out, God. I want a shortcut. I want the easy way out. Or those of you looking for a spouse, maybe you're looking for the easy button. You're like, God, where's the just drop this person right in front of me, kind of like what God did for Adam, right? He he put Adam to sleep, and Adam woke up, his eyes opened, and there this woman was in front of him. And maybe that's your prayer. Is like, just give me an easy way. I, I I want an easy way to this to this thing I'm praying for. Or you're maybe you're just saying, give me this perfect job, just the dream job. That's what I need. I need the easy way out. I mean, sometimes God does that, right? Look look at the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac. He. He's called by God to take his son Isaac. He says, God says, take your son, your only son, bring him to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice him there on an altar. Now, Abraham had no idea. He's like, what are you asking for? But he did it, right? Genesis 22, go read it for yourself. He brings he brings his son, he builds this altar, he puts wood on it, he ties his son Isaac up on the wood. He lays him on the altar. He picks up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord calls out from heaven. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, yeah, here I am. And the angel said, don't lay lay a hand on him. Don't even hurt him. For now I know that you truly fear God. You haven't withheld even your son from me. And so the passage says that Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket, and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And that passage ends with these words, Abraham named the place Yahweh Yirah or Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. And to this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And maybe that's the very promise that you're praying to God. God, provide Provide a way out. Give me the ram. Give me the shortcut. Give me the easy way out. And it, it feels a little bit like that that's what Jesus is praying for here. I mean, Jesus knew that story. Isaac was a type of Christ. He was a prototype. He was, this whole picture was a picture of the father being willing to sacrifice the son, but at the last second, the son doesn't have to die. And can you understand that that's maybe what Jesus is thinking? Maybe, maybe he's praying to the Father. Maybe there's a way for you to repeat that. Maybe you can take this cup of suffering away from me. It's happened before. It happened later in Genesis 47, where Joseph, remember, Joseph was sold into slavery and his 11 brothers, um, they all thought that he was dead. His father thought he was dead. It turns out he wasn't. God uses him in a... In a powerful way. He places him in this position of authority in Egypt so that when famine hits the land and, you know, Joseph's dad sends his brothers to see if Joseph, you know, to see what can happen, you know, see how they can kind of escape the suffering of famine. They're looking for the easy way out to, you know, help us to not drink this cup of suffering essentially is what Joseph's father and brothers were hoping for, and and God delivered them. God delivered them. Pharaoh said to Joseph, now that your father and brothers have joined you here, choose any place in the entire land of Egypt for them to live. Give them the best land of Egypt. Let them live in the region of Goshen. And so it was. They, They lived in the region of Goshen, and the Israelites escaped the cup of suffering. So maybe Jesus was thinking about Isaac. Maybe he was thinking about Joseph when he prayed. Is there another way possibly, Father? Is there another way? Is there another way we can accomplish this? And the answer, by the way, was was no. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering. But the one thing you can't do is act in a way that's contrary to your nature. You know, sometimes our wants don't line up with God's will and it's not always a sin thing. Jesus never sinned, and yet he's expressing a real desire here that doesn't line up with the will of the Father. And so for you, maybe you've been praying and you're saying, "What? am, am I doing something wrong? Am I praying wrong? Am I living wrong? Not necessarily. Sometimes your want is just not going to line up with God's will. That's what happened with Jesus. And my guess is for some of you listening, that's what's happening with you as you're praying in your desperate hour of need and you feel like God's not listening. Well, he's listening, but maybe he's just not going to answer it the way you're praying for it. That's why it's so important to see how Jesus ended this prayer in this section. He said, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. This is the essence of godly prayer express your heart to a personal God, and then submit to his will no matter what. You know, that's a dirty word these days, submission. To say that we should submit to God, to say that we should submit to someone besides ourselves or our own own wants or our own desires. I mean, this world tells us to follow your heart. You're in charge. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. And yet to follow Jesus requires this heart of submission, this heart of repentance, this heart that says, you're God, I'm not. You get to tell me what to do. And, and it's easy to say something like that when life is great, but it's, isn't it a lot harder to say something like that when you're in your deep, dark time of need, when your soul is crushed? In the most human moment in Jesus's life, right here in the Garden of Gethsemane, He says the thing that is hardest for a human to say. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Pillar New Testament Commentary says, Gethsemane presents us with a uniquely human interplay between the heart of the Son and the will of the Father. Jesus' prayer is not the result of calm absorption into an all-encompassing divine presence, but an intense struggle with the frightful reality of God's will and what it means to fully submit to it. Man, is it hard to submit to God's will. And that's why I think it's so important to have a personal relationship with God, to develop a personal relationship with God. Did you see the language that Jesus uses? He says, Abba, Father. Abba, literally in Aramaic, Abba means Daddy. You know, most commentators say that this is really probably the first time that the disciples or any of the Jewish people would have heard God referred to like that. It was almost, I don't know, like it might have even felt a little bit sacrilegious to the Pharisees to be so personal and informal. I don't know. Do you pray like that? Are you informal in your prayer with God? Here's what I think is when you're really at rock bottom when you're really at a place of desperation it's that's almost like that's the time when you can when you can shed all of the formalities that's the time when you can be just super honest i remember when our daughter, Kenzie, first got stitches. He was probably like four or five years old. And, and there she was on the operating table and the doctor had a sheet over her head where only her eyes could be seen. Her stitches were right up above her eye. And I, she looked at us, Tracy and I were standing there in the corner. She looked at us with these pleading eyes as if, as if to say, Daddy, how could you let this happen? And that's what I hear in Jesus's tone when he says, Abba, Father. Do we do we have to do it this way? Is this how it has to happen? You know that you can have that vulnerable and honest of a relationship with God as Jesus had? You don't you don't have to be all formal and dressed up to bring your, your requests to God? I love what Romans 8 says, verse 15. You've not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba Father. I wonder if Paul is thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane when he says this in Romans 8, 15. In fact, in my translation, there are quotes there. So it's, Seems like he's quoting Jesus, that just like Jesus calls him daddy, daddy, we can be that way as well. We can be raw with God. We can be honest. I mean, think about the Psalms. Read through the Psalms in your in your time of trial and need, and you'll see the psalmists were in the same place. Man, they're so vulnerable. They're, they're so authentic in their prayers, almost sacrilegious in some cases, almost like accusatory or whiny toward God. And yet God welcomes it. God allows it. Even Jesus said, Abba, Daddy, take this cup from me. But look at what it says in Romans eight seventeen, because Paul finishes the thought about our ability to go to God informally and with vulnerability. He says in verse 17, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, Together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. So yeah, it's true that everything is possible for God. But that doesn't mean he'll always lead us down a pathway that avoids suffering. He's not going to lead Jesus down the easy path. And maybe for you and for me, there's still a little bit more suffering ahead. But man, that is so hard for us, isn't it? Let's go back to the text. We see it actually in Peter, James, and John, verse 37, 38. He returned, he found the disciples asleep. So all this turmoil of soul, and he goes back to see how his wingmen are doing, and they're sleeping on him. And so he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Isn't it interesting? He calls him Simon there. Remember, Peter was the nickname Jesus gave to Simon because he said, you're going to be the rock. Well, now he doesn't call him the rock. He calls him Simon. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Oh, man, how true is that? The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. You know, I'm embarrassed when I read this story because it reminds me of the times in my life. When I want to be a wingman for someone that I love, and they're in their hour of need, and they ask for prayer, and I say, I'll pray for you, brother. And I'm telling you what, sometimes I'll see them a few days later, and then I'll just remember, oh, I was supposed to pray for them. (laughs) I fell asleep on them. Man, it is so easy to be gung-ho in one moment, and then just to kind of snore through your responsibilities in the next. I've done it. You've probably done it. And here we have... (laughs) the disciples, I mean, the inner circle of Jesus doing the same thing. And then we read on verse 39, Jesus left them again. And it says that he prayed the same prayer as before. I I had never noticed that before, but isn't it interesting that he prayed that prayer. So let's spell this out. He prayed, "Everything everything is possible for you, God. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. He prayed that same prayer again. Again, it wasn't enough to pray at one time. He prayed it again. He still is coming to the Father with this heartfelt request, wondering if maybe he could escape it. But again, it says that he prayed the same prayers before. So he also then prayed, but I want your will to be done, not mine. I mean, is that how you pray? It's okay for you if you feel like you're wearing out your knees in prayer for the same thing over and over again. Jesus did that as well. And you know what? You can still pray your own heart. You You can be vulnerable and ask God for what you want. That's okay. Jesus did, but he might not give it to you. That's why it's so important to follow Jesus's example and... Be submissive at the end of it. I mean, pray that, God, I want your will to be done, not mine. You know, it's an interesting thing. I do this with people when they come up at church after a sermon to pray with me, is they they have a request, and I pray with boldness for them over the request. But I always pray like Jesus did at the end. But God, I, we want your will to be done, not ours. You know, there's this balance, there's this tension in godly prayer where we can do both of those things. We can be honest, we can be passionate we can we can ask god to intercede we can do it with faith i think that's what jesus did here but at the same time we can say but god you're god and i'm not and so we submit to your will at the end of the day it's okay to pray, to pray prayers like that these prayers where there's some tension in fact i think it's more than okay it's biblical so then verse 40 says that when jesus returned to his disciples again he found them sleeping for they couldn't keep their eyes open it says they didn't know what to say they were so embarrassed so this is this is strike 2 right i mean he comes back he says come on guys i need i need your prayer support and he comes back and he finds them sleeping again and then it says in verse 41 when he returned a third time he said go ahead and have your sleep so you kind of get the sense that they were sleeping again the third time he said have your rest But then he says, but no, the time has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he says, up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. You know, the NIV says, the translation of the NIV, it says, Jesus said to them, enough, the hour has come. And that word enough, it's, we're not really sure exactly what the meaning of the original word is. You know, the word in Aramaic it's a word that doesn't really show up anywhere else and we kind of have to guess at the translation but it seems to be like an utterance of ex- exasperation the Pillar New Testament commentary says it maybe a good a good translation would be what's the use Jesus comes back and finds his disciples sleeping on him the third time in the midst of all this anguish so there's the contrast he's in anguish the disciples are snoring and then at the end of this little section of scripture Mark just gives us this climax where Jesus says, the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he says, up, let's be going. And here's what I love about this. And this is what we're going to end on for today's episode. This is the resolve that flows out of godly prayer. You know, Jesus did his part. He spent time more than once. He prayed according to his wants and desires, but he still submitted to the will of the Father. But at the end of the day, I love this. At the end of the day, it was almost like he's just saying, let's do this. Uh, God, I'm submitted to you no matter what happens, your will be done, not mine. And I think that's the answer to this question. How How should you pray in your hour of need? So now I think we can paint a full picture from Jesus's prayer in his hour of need in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes, number one, be honest, be vulnerable, share your heart with a personal God your Abba father, your daddy, you can do that. I hope you, I hope you develop a relationship like that with God. But, but don't just ask him for stuff. Don't just tell him what you want. You should do that, but don't leave it there. Number two, you need to be willing to submit to his will, even if it means suffering. That's what we see in Jesus. He's saying, I don't want to drink this cup. It's going to be brutal. It's going to be devastating. We'll tune in next week to learn more about what happened. But, but he said, but that's okay. I'm i I'm going to submit to it anyway. And then I love that number three, then just like, have that, like, let's do this. Let's get up and let's move forward. Let's not be paralyzed in our moment of need. Let's still move through life. Let's still be faithful in life. Let's still go out there every day, one step at a time and trust that God's will is going to be done, right? Isn't that what Jesus ultimately said? He said, not my will, but yours be done. And now here we have at the end of the story, he's saying, let's do this, let's go. He knew that he had to move forward and God's will would be done in his life, even if it meant suffering, which for him it did. So for you, as you're praying in your hour of need, Go back to Mark 14, read verses 32 to 42 again. Spend some time in prayer on this. Meditate on these words and learn these lessons from Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane.